Good morning again. Uh, I'm going to be reading the scripture passage that Pastor Benjamin is going to be preaching from this morning. It's Genesis 13, 5 through 18. It's on page 9 in the Pew Bibles. If you want to turn there and read along, and it'll be on the screen as well. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. This is God's word. So we've been preaching through part of the book of Genesis, the, the part of the book of Genesis that deals with a story of a man named Abram, or Abraham as he's later called. This morning we titled the sermon, Scarcity, When Others Get Ahead in a Zero-Sum World. And I know scarcity and zero-sum might be foreign phrase or word, but I hope to make good sense of them as we go. We have a bulletin, um, and in there there's a, pic, a piece of paper to draw a picture on, especially for the children who do stay in here during the sermon, and, and maybe the thing you'd consider drawing this morning would be a picture of a toy uh, that you don't like to share, uh, a toy you don't like to share. It's all yours, and uh, you know, maybe that's Legos, maybe that's the TV remote, <laughs> uh, maybe that's your golf clubs. Um, Maybe it's a food. Maybe you don't share your cake or, or your ice cream. Um, I, I, I want to start here um, thinking, since we're thinking about food, you know, the, the church is always at the forefront of the great moral questions of our time. Um, so let's say you and I are eating pizza together, and uh, we're eating pizza, we're getting towards the end of the meal, we're both still hungry, all right? And we look down and there's four pieces of pizza left, and there's two of us. 
All right, how are, you, how are we going to divide these pieces of pizza? Go ahead and look at the screen here. We look down and we see this. Um, <laughs> it's a big moral question here. There's four pieces left. They're very different sizes. <laughs> what are you going to do? I say to you, you pick first. You're going to choose the small ones? Oh, no, you take the big ones. Or are you going to take the one big one small? Now, you could, you could put the picture down. Um, I, I don't think that quick split-second decision as you look down and see you know, two giant pieces of pizza, one small piece of pizza, and, and how we're going to share these together in our meal, I don't think that decision communicates everything you believe about God. Like, I don't think that. I think that would be overstating the case a little bit. However, however, there is a story here of Lot and Abram. And the decisions they make in this passage communicate what they believe about God, who he is, what he's done in their life, what he promises to do. Out of the overflow of our hearts, we make decisions. We speak, we act out of the overflow of our heart. Now, maybe not one split second decision over dinner, but the totality of our lives, how we live them, communicates what we believe about God. Namely, whether we believe in our heart God is stingy. Like, think about that. If we believe in our hearts that God is stingy, you're going to believe that you have to fight for everything. And you're going to view those in your life as competitors. Now, don't get me wrong. I, there's a place for fighting for things, and there's a time for competition. But I'm saying something different. I'm saying that if you fundamentally believe that God is a, a stingy God, that he's threadbare, that he's, that he's with a type of God that withholds, it means that you're going to live a life where you have to fight for things. And everybody around you, you view them as a competitor, even when they are brother and sister in the family of faith. Our, our scripture reading began in Genesis 13.5, but um, I know the summertime people come and go, and uh, maybe you're visiting even this morning. So let me bring you up to speed where we're at in this story. So back in chapter 11, we saw that when God called Abram to himself, he did so when Abram was lost, like very lost. His family was worshiping the stars, perhaps specifically the moon. He was from a town, a hometown called Ur, and Ur was famous, perhaps infamous, for moon worship. Abram has family members who are named after pagan gods related to the worship of the stars. So we can assume Abram, too, was a part of this worshiping of, of the moon and the stars. In fact, the rest of the Bible, when it hints back at this, would say as much. And it's in this bad spiritual shape it's in this kind of pagan brokenness. It's in this kind of idolatry that is so offensive to God that God moves near. He draws near to Abram and welcomes him into his family. Sometimes we sing the lines, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. That's what happens to us in Christ and the gospel, but that's what happened to Abram as well. And God gave him these thick, lavish 
promises of blessing and promises of protection. And then over the last two weeks, we saw Abram ran into a problem. A certain situation caused him to, to forget these promises, to forget these blessings and protection that God had offered him. And after a very long time away from the Lord, he came home. The journey wasn't easy, as David pointed out last week. There was baggage to deal with, and he had to look people in the eye and say, I'm sorry. He had to do that with the Lord. He, when Abram leaves Egypt, he has all this wealth, and he puts that wealth on an altar, and he cries out to God. That's verse 4 of chapter 13. So now we're current. Let, let me read again Genesis 13, 5 through 7. So hopefully the Bible, you can leave it open. and We'll be referencing this story many times. So this is how the story opens. And Lot, who was with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. I've used before as we've preached, especially when we're talking about stories, narratives from the Bible, I've used the phrase inciting incident. The inciting incident is this thing that puts really the story into motion. So just for example, if you had in a story a main character walking along, um, minding his own business, that's not much of a story. But if that main character is walking along, minding his own business, but he's going to the park, and then all of a sudden someone jumps out of the bushes and punches him in the face, like, then you have a story. Then, then something has happened that changed where something else was headed. One character wants one thing, the park, and then all of a sudden someone else is in the way. That's the inciting incident. And it's helpful to know that just kind of from a literature thing. But, but as we read the Bible, particularly stories, and ask the question, okay, what, what puts this story into motion? Now, if you have a Bible open, look, look back at Genesis 12, 10. This is from two weeks ago. 12, 10 was the inciting incident there. It says, now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Abram's minding his own business in the promised land, then boom, right? A famine punches him in the face. He's got to reckon with that. That puts a story into motion. Now, if you look over at chapter 13, verse 2, and then I'll read also 2 and 5 and 6, what is this inciting incident now? 13.2, now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. Coming down to verse 5, and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them, dwelling together, for their possessions were so great they could not dwell together. Now what's the inciting incident? What's this punch in the face, so to speak? A few weeks ago, it was poverty. This week, what is it? It's prosperity. Just let that sink in. What that communicates about what it means to walk with God and to know Him and the trials we experience, the kinds of trials and how we might interpret various situations. God certainly wants us to notice this. In fact, the word for 
that's used to describe famine is the same Hebrew word that's used to describe wealth. He's, there's a severe famine, and he's very rich. Which is to say, your life won't necessarily be better when you have all your bills paid. Your life might not necessarily be better if every health challenge was erased. Prosperity challenges the faith of these two men. And it does for us. How are they going to respond? How do you respond to prosperity? Recently, we took a car ride back to the Midwest to see family. And it was a wonderful vacation. Um, this was in June. And, and it's a 14-hour drive back from, from Iowa, and, uh, which we did in only three very, very, very short stops. And if you ask me if I'm sort of proud of that, I would say maybe too much. <laughs> um, and, and, and we did it because we woke up uh, in, in Iowa um, so that we could play games in Pennsylvania at night. There was volleyball and basketball to be played. And so we're a big family, family of eight crammed into an SUV. Um, and near the end of the trip, in fact, I will say, tw- 20, and I asked permission to say, 22 minutes left in the trip, one child in the back punched another child in the face, <laughs> and, uh, and a tooth was lost, even. <laughs> I know. Now, there's a part of this you don't know, which is the tooth was also very, 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 very loose. <laughs> um, and, and they were just roughhousing, as you, any young boy might after uh, 14 hours in the back of a car. Um, but this is what happens to Abraham and Lot. In verse 7, we read the word strife. <laughs> Shepherds have rods and staffs, right? We read that in Psalm 21, your rod, your staff, right? Beloved Psalm 23, like it's a good thing, but shepherds have rods and staffs, and we presume, reading between the lines here, that one shepherd has used his rod or staff to loosen the tooth of another shepherd. And poverty has challenged their faith, and now prosperity. There's just too much, too many sheep, too much gold, too much, too much. What will these men do? Let's talk about how each of them respond here We'll take Abram first. Let me read 8 to 10. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we're kinsmen. Verse 9. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. I'll actually just stop there. You'll notice that Abram initiates... He sees the conflict, and he initiates. This speaks to what is, for him, this growing level of spiritual maturity. Sees conflict, and he initiates. It's a sign of spiritual health. And not only does he initiate, he generously offers Lot to have first pick of where to live. But before he offers, he pleads one more time, doesn't he? Again, he says, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen. For, what does he say? We are kinsmen. To Abram, this family tie, this connection matters to him. He will not cancel this relationship easily. You might remember back in chapter 11, we read that Lot's father died young. His name was Haran. Lot's father dies 
Abram welcomes him into his family, so it's uncle and nephew, and they link up together and travel together. In fact, every time Lot has been mentioned thus far, three times, it's, it says, and he was with Abram. To Abram, this meant something. They've been through things together. They went down to Egypt and back together. And now, verse 7, we read that they're foreigners in the land. If there was ever a time they needed to stick together, it was now. And as Abram says, they're kinsmen. Think about that. At, at, at Abram's heart, at the level of the heart, he actually wants peace. He wants his family member to repent. Not so that he can be right, but so they can be reconciled. So they can be in mission together of blessing the world to bless the nations with the knowledge of God. In the last few years, how many of us, like seriously, how many of us have thrown away relationships with brothers or sisters in the Lord? We've thrown away relationships with local churches and pastors. How many of us have torn down with our speech and with our thoughts other believers, believers? And how many of us in our hearts don't actually want our brothers and sisters, to repent unless it's so that we can be right. It's not about reconciliation. I think, uh, I'm using that word carefully, I think, it's not said, I think when Abram says, we are kinsmen, but if you want to go a lot, you take first pick. I think when he says that, he's actually hoping that interaction will cause Lot to wake up. So that he go, you're right, uncle, we can work this out. Is that what happens? Is that what Lot does? Let's talk about Lot, Lot's actions. Now, Lot, in some ways, is a lot like you. Now, maybe not in some ways, we hope, but, but, but in this regard, like many of you, perhaps, you've been around people of faith. You've been around people of faith. They've brought you to church. Maybe you grew up in their homes. Maybe you've left their homes, but now you have other friends, and they're bringing you to church or bringing you to Bible studies. And you have to decide how you feel about Jesus. You have to make that decision. You can't just, there's a point that's really healthy to go with someone to church, with someone to the Lord. But at some point, you, like Lot, have to make decisions for yourself. What I want to say is, don't make decisions the way Lot makes them. Look again at the wording in verses 10 through 13. Verse 10, and Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw that the Jordan Valley, so this is the west side looking east, was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar, as was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. To journey east in Genesis has the connotations of going away from the Lord over and over again. Thus they separated from each other. Verse 12, Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. There's some foreshadowing here for later in the book. Now, with technology, thankfully, you can go to Google Maps and you actually kind of can put little pin down and like point the direction out to see. And so we have a, a picture here of what this might have looked like. Um, 
So you're standing there. It's not exactly the same place, but which side are you going to choose? <laughs> right? You need to pasture your flock. Uh, you got you got to walk. You know, where are you going to choose? <laughs> it's pretty obvious, I think, in some regards. Um, and thankfully, actually, with technology, you can go. There's this filter you can put on to like see how it would have looked 4,000 years ago. Brandon, you want to put that picture up as well? Um, that's that's how Lot saw that picture actually. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly how Lot saw that. Anyway, you can you can put that down. Um, look with me at verse 10 and just put your finger on the phrase "like the garden of the Lord." Let your eyes go there. Put your finger there. Whatever you want to do. What comes next? Lot views paradise, the Garden of Eden, God's best for his people, and he equates it with what? Like Egypt. Maybe it's nothing. I don't think it is. Egypt in the Bible is synonymous with the worst of what the, well, the best and the worst of what the world has to offer. I mean, maybe we would say it's like, it was like Eden, like Vegas. Like, I mean, that, that's what he's doing there. And for the first time, Lot makes spiritual decisions for his families, and he's not making good decisions. You can see that as the verse continues. He moves across the Dead Sea, across the Jordan, outside the land of Canaan, which means he essentially moves into the suburbs of Sodom. In verse 12, we read that Lot settled among the cities of the valley and he moved his tent as far as Sodom. It's, it, 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 you just feel this magnetism in these words, the way it's described. It's pulling him in. Later in chapter 14, so here in 12, excuse me, 13, it says he's, he's going to put his tent there. In, in, in chapter 14, verse 12, it says that he's going to dwell there. When you get to 19, chapter, uh, chapter 19, verse 1, it says that he's sitting at the city gate. He's essentially a leader. Lot thinks, I'll be okay. It looks nice. I can handle it. He can't handle this. Anyone do that now? Oh, I'll be fine. I'm just going to settle nearby sin. I'm not going to be in sin. I know this might be bad for my family, but I can handle it. Don't think like this. The book of Proverbs asks the question rhetorically, can a man carry fire next to his chest and not be burned, not have his clothes burned? Genesis shows that Lot cannot carry fire next to his chest without getting burned. And it's these actions of these two men that begin to, as I tried to say at the beginning, display their faith. You might think I'm merely making applications about generosity and unity, as is the case with Abram, or avoiding sin and choosing the spiritual best, as in the case of Lot. But I'm not merely doing that. The passage here is not inviting us to merely do that. Where do these decisions come from? They come from faith. Lot believes in a stingy God, and he sees his kinsmen as a competitor. Abram believes God will bless and protect him, and he sees his kinsman as a kinsman. These are very different outworkings of very different views of God. Let me put it like this. David preached a wonderful sermon last week. 
What if I were sitting in the congregation going, that's going to make it harder for me to look good? (laughs) That would be so ugly. Or what if I were thinking, if Ben Bechtel plants a thriving church, what's that going to say about community? If we go to their work day, who's going to come to ours? This is what I mean by the title of scarcity and zero sum. Scarcity means there's a lack of resources, right? Resources don't exist, at least not enough for everyone anyway. And, and, and zero sum, that's where that comes in. If you've ever played the game of war, you ever played a game of war, card game? 52 cards, a very simple game. Uh, you start at the beginning of the game with 52 cards, and you end the game with 52 cards. However many people, you play with four people, you play with two people, and you flip over a card, and whoever has the highest card takes those cards. You put them back in your stack. And you just keep playing until what happens? Someone has all the cards, right? Do any new cards materialize during the game? No. If you have more cards, I have less, right? That's, that's zero sum. There's no new cards If you have more, then I must therefore have less. Question, is that how you view the world as a believer? Is that how you view God? This is not how God created the world. God is not a stingy God. In the beginning, the rivers teem with fish. The earth teems with plants and animals, and two fish and five loaves in the hand of Jesus feed thousands. Our God is a God of generosity and abundance. I'll put it like this. Do you view God as this this water pitcher of blessings or a fountain? It makes a huge difference. Our view of God shapes who we are and how we live. Our view of God as an abundant God should mean that we know churches don't compete for market share. If you happen to be married, do you view your spouse as a competitor? How well does that go? What about with siblings? Some of you have been out of the house 25 years You're still competing for your father's affection? Even after your father is gone? Hear me when I say the affection of your heavenly father for you is not zero sum. If you know Jesus, if you believe that he died for your sins and he rose again, you are in a relationship with an abundant father. Consider just one line from probably Jesus' most famous parable, the parable of the prodigal son. We call it the parable of the prodigal son. There's actually two sons. The wayward son comes home. Father sees him a long ways off, runs, throws the party, kills the fattened calf. And what happens in the heart of the older brother? He has this scarcity view of his father's affection. It's zero sum. Love for the brother means less love for him. And what does the father say? The father initiates, pulls him aside, and this is what he says. This is the quote from Luke 15, 31. Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. How might your life look differently if you really believed that about God? And many of you do believe in a God like this. I see it. I see it in the choices you make. 
Some of you sacrificially choosing one career over another when, when the economics, even on paper, don't necessarily make sense, but you choose it out of view of who God is and what he's calling you to do. You're doing that. Some of you are leaving the comfort of one church to strike out into another church. That's, that could be hard. And you're doing it not because it's cool or hip, but because of who you believe about God. Well, what happens to Abram after this? Let's read the last section of our passage. Look at verses 14 through 18. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. In other words, you can't count that, you can't count the other. Verse 17, arise and walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Look at verse 14, when, when does it say that God spoke to Abram? You see the word after. Abram's a changed man in Egypt. Before this, he sacrificed his family for his own safety. But here, he tries to preserve family, even at cost to himself. And it didn't work out. Or did it? God says, lift up your eyes and look. I, I, this isn't some prosperity where like, okay, if you just do the good enough thing, then God will give you more. It's not saying that. I don't think Abram imagined, like he knew in some vague way that God, God will take care of me, but he never imagined this kind of outpouring. Abram says, you look left or right, and essentially north or south, and lot you take whichever one you want, but what does God say to him? Northward, and verse... Um, Verse 14, it says, northward and southward, eastward and westward. Abraham uses two directions. God says, look in every direction. If you go back to chapter 12, verse 7, and then you put alongside it 13, 15, two promises that are almost written the exact same way. In the one it says, I will give you this land, but then it gets expanded about this land that you see. And then you... Say, I'm going to give this to your descendants. And then God says, I'm going to give this to your descendants forever. He's just expanding upon these promises in ways and with degrees that Abram would not have imagined. And even to this day, I would say, this promise of the expansion of the land is being fulfilled as God puts Christians all over the world. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, Jesus said. And here's the point. You can't outgive God when he gives us the gospel. When you have Jesus, you have everything. We have fountain, not pitcher. And so, to his abundant, generous God, Abram builds another altar, as has been his pattern. In fact, so far in our study, Abram has moved from altar to altar to altar. In a month or so, at least as we're preaching it, he's going to end up at a really tough altar. And only faith is going to carry him through that. And this is why we titled 
the sermon series Towards the City with Foundations. It's an allusion to what the New Testament author of Hebrews says about Abram. You don't have to turn there. Let me just read Hebrews 11, 8, 9, and 10. By faith, Abram, when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going, by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For, it says, he was looking to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. This issue with Lot and Abram is not merely one is more generous and does a good job avoiding sin and the other does not. The issue is faith. Who do you believe God is? God might be telling some of you to be more generous and some of you to pursue unity and ways and to degrees you haven't pursued it yet. He might be telling some of you to make better spiritual decisions, not merely better financial decisions. I'm sure he's telling some of us some of these things. But more than that, God is saying to you this morning, look up. Look up, church. Lift up your eyes of faith. Know me as I am. Let me pray and invite the worship team to come back up and lead us in a couple songs. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I think of your son Jesus and the passage in John 7 we preached a few months ago. where you say that whoever believes in you out of his life, out of him will, will flow rivers of living water. Lord, I pray that that would happen here among us, that, that as we see you for who you are, as we trust you, as we follow you, that you would pour through us, into us, and through us to others. We pray this in Christ's name.